My text for today's sermon is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. We continue our series through the letter of 1 John. We approach the end of this particular epistle getting very close to completing this epistle. And as we will see, John begins to look more and more at the evidence of faith as it relates to the Son of God. He has talked about various evidences that we may see in the life of a Christian by which we would be assured that we belong to the Lord. But now he begins to focus his attention upon that supreme evidence, that supreme assurance of salvation, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in particular today, he focuses his attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the object of our faith. Anytime an ambassador is sent from one nation to another, it is absolutely essential that his credentials first be established before his message can be trusted. The nation to whom the ambassador comes must first know with confidence that he, the ambassador, is who he says he is. That he truly represents the government that has sent him. To that end, the ambassador must produce his credentials, if you will. All of these credentials will bear witness to his person, to his mission, and to his message that he brings to that nation. Now, if the ambassador can prove he has the authority to deliver his message because of who he is and whom he represents, then the message he brings can be trusted to be faithful and true. If, however, he cannot produce credentials or witnesses to confirm his identity, why should his message be believed at all? And so as we turn our attention from that simple little illustration, we want to focus our attention upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in flesh 
We want to focus our attention upon him because herein is the argument which the Apostle John presents to the Christians of Asia Minor in order to firmly anchor their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can know, dear ones, with absolute assurance that your faith in Jesus Christ is not misplaced because Jesus Christ is no ordinary person. He is the Son of the Most High God. Thus He is able, because of who He is and who He represents, He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by Him. Beloved, can the promises of the Gospel be trusted to be faithful and true? Of course they can. Well, why? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come from the Father in order to fulfill the covenant of grace so that these promises of the gospel might be enjoyed by all who will hear and believe him. Because of who Jesus is, you can have assurance that your faith is not in vain. You can have assurance that you belong to him because of who Jesus is. The critical issue here, again, as we mentioned in the last sermon, when we're talking about an overcoming faith, it is not the size of your faith. It is not the strength of your faith. It is the object of your faith. Is Jesus who he says he is And can he be trusted because of who he is to fulfill his promises to you who believe in him? What are the credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ who comes as the divine ambassador from heaven carrying a message to us, a message of peace with God, reconciliation to God through his death and resurrection? What are his credentials? What witnesses can Jesus Christ put forward that will conclusively prove that he is the Son of God and on that basis should be believed and trusted to fulfill all of the promises he has made to you, his people? For dear ones, if Christ is who he says he is, then we have, we have, the promises of the gospel. They're ours. They belong to us if Jesus is who he says he is. And if Christ is who he says he is, beloved, then we have an unshakable confidence and assurance that we will receive everything that has been promised. And so you see, beloved, everything hinges on the identity of Christ. Let's examine together the witnesses that the Apostle John brings forward to confirm that Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. Three points this Lord's Day to this sermon. First point, we'll consider the earthly witnesses. In verses 6 and 8. 
Second, we'll consider the heavenly witnesses in verse 7. And thirdly, the conclusion of the testimony that's presented in those verses in verse 9. What conclusion should we draw based upon the testimony of the earthly witnesses and the testimony of the heavenly witnesses? Well, let us consider then, first of all, the testimony of the earthly witnesses. And I read for you verses 6 and verse 8. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. The Apostle John, having declared in chapter 5, verse 5, that the faith that cannot be overcome by the world, the flesh, or the devil, the faith that will persevere to the end, although it may be weak, although it may be faltering at times, is that faith which is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a faith that will overcome the world, the flesh and the devil. There is no possibility that it will falter, that it will fail. That is a persevering faith because of who that faith is in. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we noted in a previous sermon, this overcoming faith, dear ones, is not a mere intellectual assent. It is not a mere verbal profession. This overcoming faith will indeed assent to the truth and it will indeed manifest itself in a verbal profession of the truth. But it will also willingly embrace and trust Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. Why will it trust Jesus Christ? Why will this overcoming faith trust Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's going to come up time and time again throughout this sermon. Lord willing, you will leave with that in your mind. Your faith is safe and secure because it is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And thus, dear ones, he can be trusted because he is the Son of God to keep his promise to save every single one who casts himself upon his mercy. As we look at chapter 5, verse 6, the words at the very beginning of that verse, this is he. Notice those words. This is he. This is who? Well, going back to verse 5, it says that Jesus is the Son of God. This is He. This verse tells us that John is now elaborating further on the object of our faith, namely the Son of God. The title, the Son of God, is not a way of making Christ less than God. 
as do the Jehovah Witnesses. To the contrary, it is a way of making Jesus Christ equal in divine nature and in all glorious attributes and perfections to, the, to God the Father. Turn with me, if you will, very briefly to John chapter 5, verse 18, where we see a, a commentary on what the title, the Son of God, means. You see in verse 17, Jesus speaks of my father worketh hitherto and I work. He was calling God in a very unique sense, his own father. And it says in verse 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, in their judgment he had broken the Sabbath, because he had, in verse 16 of that chapter, because he had healed on the Sabbath. They thought he had broken the Sabbath. Jesus said, no, the Sabbath is made for deeds of mercy. Because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father. Now notice, making himself equal with God. You see, that title, Son of God, according to the scriptures, makes him equal with God. Not inferior to God, but equal to God. In fact, the very reason they sought to kill him was because they considered this blasphemy to call God his own father. Now, that word own, O-W-N, is not translated in our English text, but it is present in the Greek text. He was saying, God is his own father. He was saying, I am the only begotten son of the father. We are all children of God by faith. But we're not the only begotten Son of God. There is only one only begotten Son who is equal in divine nature to the Father. This is Jesus Christ. And at his trial in John 19.7, he was brought before the trial, the, the court, because they said he had blasphemed and he had made himself out to be the Son of God. That was the charge that was brought against him. He made himself out to be the Son of God, which was essentially to say, I am God. And I've sought to bring this point home to Jehovah Witnesses on various occasions by asking them first, what does Christ mean when he calls himself the Son of Man? And inevitably they respond, why, it means that Christ is truly man and has the nature of man. Then I follow up by asking them, what does Christ mean when he calls himself the Son of God? And interestingly, at that point, there is complete silence. And so I state the obvious for them. 
if the title, the Son of Man, does not mean that Christ is inferior to man, but has the nature of man, and is truly man, then the title, the Son of God, does not mean that Christ is inferior to God, but that he has the nature of God and is truly God. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 6 again, This is he, that is, this is the Son of God, who is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the very one who came from heaven to earth, was made flesh, and dwelt among us. John's emphasis, dear ones, upon the deity and the humanity of Christ is not incidental to our salvation. It's not a circumstance. It is absolutely essential to our salvation. No other Christ, beloved, can save a sinner from the wrath and the condemnation of God than one who is fully God and fully man. No other Christ offers the sinner the promise of eternal life if he believes this gospel. And Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Remember now, as you consider this text, that John does not pen these inspired words in a historical vacuum. These words, in fact, clearly refute the heretical views of the Gnostics at that particular time. One of the most celebrated of the Gnostics was a man by the name of Serinthus, who distinguished between Jesus, the man, the beer man, and the Christ, a divine uh, presence that came upon Jesus at his baptism by John. But which divine presence departed from Jesus, the mere man, before his death upon the cross? And so, according to Serenthus and the Gnostics, this view at least, there were various views amongst the Gnostics with regard to who Jesus was, but this was one view, and I believe fits very well into the context that we are looking at this Lord's Day. According to them, he was a mere man born by natural birth, but at his baptism, the special presence or anointing came upon him. So that he became, in a sense, an exalted man at that particular point. Still a man, but an exalted man. But before he died, this presence, this divine presence, departed from him and he died as a mere man upon the cross. This, no doubt, was a speculative attempt on the part of Serenthus to explain how Jesus could have a certain uniqueness distinct from all other men so as to perform the miracles that he did. And yet, at the same time, to explain how Jesus could succumb to death as an ordinary man. This was his speculative approach an attempt to explain these mysteries. Not accepting the biblical revelation, Serenthus and the Gnostics turned to speculation, to their imagination, to their own thoughts. And John says, such a Jesus that you envision cannot save you, no matter how great your faith is 
in that Jesus. It cannot save you. It would appear that against this heretical view, then, John directs his reputation. For John, in effect, makes clear in chapter 5, verse 6, that the one who was eternally God the Son came to earth and was made flesh. And the very events to which Serenthus and his followers falsely pointed to promote their heresy. Remember the two events? His baptism and his death. These same very events actually prove, according to the Apostle John, they become witnesses, earthly witnesses, to Christ's humanity and deity. And so John takes us to those same two events, his baptism and his death, as the first two earthly witnesses. Rather than separating Jesus from Christ, John unites the two in an inseparable union. And in chapter 5, verse 6, he calls this divine and human person, Jesus Christ. And so it's time now for John to call his earthly witnesses to the witness stand to testify to the one who is sent by God. There are three earthly witnesses by which Jesus Christ is manifested to be the Son of God who came in the flesh. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. Let's consider the water. As I said earlier, just as the Gnostics pointed to the baptism of Christ as the event at which Christ at the event at which the Christ or that anointing, that presence of God came upon the man Jesus and made him an exalted man. So John now points to the baptism of Christ as the event at which Jesus Christ was declared by God to be his only begotten Son. Mark 1, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we find these words. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw, and that is John saw, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The Apostle John takes us to the baptism and says, Yes, that is a key event. He came by water, and by that water, by that baptism, was manifested the fact that He is God's eternal Son. Dear ones, our own baptism, as we begin to make an application at this point, our own baptism and that baptism of our children likewise testifies that our faith is in Jesus Christ alone, who is the Son of God, who came in flesh to redeem His people from their sins. The sacrament of baptism 
Beloved, is an earthly sign which confirms our faith that only this one who is God and man can save us. It is this one that will cleanse from sin all those who are united to him by faith. The sacrament of baptism is a sign and a seal of our union with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So John takes them to the first witness, first earthly witness, the water, where God pronounces his Son to be his own. But the second earthly witness is the blood. Not only was Jesus Christ proved to be the Son of God in flesh by water, that is, by his baptism, but also by blood, that is, by his death. In Matthew 27, verses 50 through 54, hear the testimony that was pronounced again by God concerning his Son. The various evidences that God the Father showed forth concerning his Son. There we find these words. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now notice these signs. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. One sign given by the Father to demonstrate that this was the Son of God. Second sign. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. The third sign. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, arose from the dead, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion... And they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake. And those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. See, that was the testimony at his death, declared concerning him through these events. But not only do we read concerning that, <clears throat> consider the various prophecies fulfilled from the Old Testament scriptures at the death of Jesus Christ. I'll point out just two. There are many, but just focus your attention upon these two Old Testament prophecies, which point again to the fact that this was the Son of God who died on the cross. Well, first of all, the soldiers divided his garments among themselves. Now, this isn't something that Jesus himself, while hanging on the cross, if he was merely a man, could conjure up or could, could uh, try to fulfill a prophecy while hanging on a cross. But this is what occurred. It says, <clears throat> then, the, uh, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Now do you understand what we've just read here? 
I didn't really clearly see that, I have to confess, until today. There was a garment and there was a coat. The garment was divided into four parts. The coat, because it was seamless, that part was cast lots for. But they divided the, the, the garment into four parts, split it up, and gave it to the four soldiers. Now, this is a pretty specific prophecy. But notice the fulfillment of this. And I continue reading from where I began. They said, let us not, not rend it, that is, the, uh, the coat that's without a seam, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them. They divided. That's the four parts of the, of the raiment of the garment. And for my vesture, they did cast lots. That's for the seamless coat. They cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. That prophecy is from Psalm 22:18. Quite a specific fulfillment of prophecy. This is the Son of God. The scripture is pointing to one other prophecy that Jesus, if he were a mere man, had no control over. And it's after his death. The soldiers did not break his legs, but pierced his side with a spear, according to John 19, verses 32 through 37. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and the other, which was crucified with him, the two thieves on either side. They came and broke their legs. They were still alive. This was supposed to be an act of mercy to help them to die more quickly so they could not support themselves uh, and continue to breathe. But it was also quite agonizing because men would therefore basically suffocate uh, to death because they would hang limp, not being able to catch their breath. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. That's from Psalm 34:20. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. From, Psalm tw- or from Zechariah 12:10. Was this the Son of God? Yes, the blood, his death, declares him to be the Son of God as well. And dear ones, again, by application, we have a continual testimony in the Lord's Supper that Jesus Christ was the Son of God in flesh who died to deliver us from the guilt and condemnation which our sin so aptly deserves. We acknowledge in the Lord's Supper that it is only by eating His body and drinking His blood that we have eternal life. That is, it is only by embracing This Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, made flesh, and who died and gave His life, His body, and His blood for us, 
It is only by that means, trusting in that one, that we can have eternal life. For you see, whereas baptism is administered only once to signify our union with Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the Lord's Supper is administered many times to signify our communion, our continual communion with the Lord Jesus Christ throughout our Christian life and for all eternity. One union, many communions with Christ. The third earthly witness is the Spirit. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is that which also bears witness to the child of God that his or her faith is sure and certain when it is placed in the Christ of the Bible. The inward witness of the Spirit, dear ones, confirms in our heart that the Word of God is absolutely true when it declares Christ to be the Son of God who came in the flesh to redeem His people. There is within every child of God the Holy Spirit bearing witness with the Word of God, bearing witness with that person's Spirit that Jesus Christ is assuredly the Son of God. I wonder, dear ones, have you taken time lately to even think and to consider, to reflect upon, to appreciate and praise God for the fact that you know, you believe, and you have embraced Jesus Christ freely offered to you in the Gospel? Is it not a miracle which should never lose its glory and wonder in the life of one who has truly believed in Christ? For dear ones, the, the gospel reveals to all who hear it and read it that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But why, why I ask you, why have you not only heard with your ears, but embraced the Son of God and cast yourselves upon His mercy. Why did you, when millions hear the Gospel, when millions read the Gospel, why did you embrace Christ as the Son of God? Have you not thought about that recently? You need to think about it. You need to dwell on it, to reflect on it, to appreciate it. Because it is the witness of the Holy Spirit within who directed you to believe and to trust in Christ as the Son of God. Without that witness, you would not have done so. And you would not continue to believe that He is the Son of God who saves from sin if He did not continue to bear witness in your spirit, with your spirit, that He is the Son of God. You know, the scripture teaches us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man is, is the non-Christian. For they are foolishness unto him. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness unto the natural man, to the non-Christian. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the things of the Spirit of God, the things that are revealed in the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed to those who
who are spiritual, not to those who are natural, to those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, to those to whom the Spirit of God bears testimony and witness concerning the truth. See, that is something we ought to embrace even now. Are you down? Are you discouraged today? Can you see what grace and mercy Jesus Christ has bestowed upon you in giving to you his spirit that you might believe and have that testimony within you that he is the Son of God? It comes from him. It comes not from ourselves. And the reason he did so, according to 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. The reason he has given us his spirit is that no flesh should glory in his presence. If we had directed ourselves to, to, to believe in Christ, if it was our testimony, if it was our witness, we could boast in the presence of Christ, the presence of God. But because we have nothing that we can bring before God, but simply to bring Jesus Nothing in ourself. No flesh can glory in his presence. I would also mention, before going on to the heavenly witnesses very quickly, that the witness of the Spirit is also born to Christ in our lives by the operations of the Spirit, as we have noted in previous sermons. The various operations, the way in which the Holy Spirit works in our life, testifies concerning Christ, the Son of God, made flesh. The Holy Spirit, listen carefully, bears witness, dear ones, by producing a love for holiness, a love for the truth, and a love for Christ in our brethren. You see, that witness of the Spirit in our life is a testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God as well. For where the Spirit of Christ is, and again, I make some application for our benefit from this at this time. Where the Spirit of Christ is, there will a love for the truth be. But not a love to argue and to debate. A love for the truth, but not a Love simply to debate and argue for the sake of debating and arguing. When it is the cause of Christ and love for the Lord Jesus Christ that motivates us to defend Him, we see the Spirit of God clearly at work in our lives. But when we are overtaken with a critical spirit and simply enjoying displaying our debating skills and abilities, we see the flesh at work. Not the operation of the spirit, but the flesh at work. I want the spirit of God to bear witness in my life I know you do if you belong to him as well. But he will do so by manifesting in your life and mine a spirit of encouragement to the brethren. Wherever we are able to encourage one another in the home, to encourage our children when they are doing a good job, 
It makes their task, believe me, much lighter. They want to keep on and press on. Husbands to encourage wives. That is the Holy Spirit bearing witness in your spirit that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Wives encouraging husbands that they appreciate their faithfulness and the stand they take for the truth. That they appreciate their faithfulness in bringing home and supplying the necessities of life. They appreciate their spiritual leadership in the home. This is the encouragement, dear ones, that the Spirit bears testimony to in our own lives. Rather than witnessing in our lives that spirit of harsh criticism that seems to to focus so much on the faults of others, uncovering those faults, displaying those faults for everybody to see. Yes, there's a time to correct. There's a time to, to point out the sins of others. But dear ones, that ought not to be our focus. If people do not see us as encouragers, but rather as primarily those who bring criticism, something is dreadfully wrong. The Spirit of God is not bearing witness as he should in our lives that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And one other thing I would note, the Spirit of God bears witness in our lives that we have embraced the Jesus Christ presented in the Bible by manifesting thankfulness in our speech rather than complaints and discontentment about our lot in life. Rather than wallowing in our self-pity, the Spirit bears witness that we belong to Him, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we have trusted in this Jesus by the thankfulness that flows forth from our mouths and our heart. It's not simply going through the motions and saying, well, praise the Lord anyway. I'm resigned. I can't do anything about the situation anyway. God is sovereign. No, it's a thankfulness and a joy that if it has worked out this way, God has a purpose and a plan. He is my Father. He loves me. And he's about to accomplish his will in my life. And I can submit and entrust my life to this one. For he is the Son of God. You see, it's one thing to say that we believe that Christ is the Son of God. It's another thing to evidence that Christ is the Son of God in our speech and in our conduct. Is the Holy Spirit, beloved, Is the Holy Spirit bearing witness that we truly believe that Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh by our loving in deed and in truth? Let us consider the second main point, that being the testimony of the heavenly witnesses in verse 7. For there are three that bear record In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. 
Before I say anything about the heavenly witnesses, I must say something briefly about the authenticity of this verse in the first part of verse 8. Many critics abound today, many even within professing Reformed and Presbyterian churches who deny that this verse has a rightful place in God's word. And thus you will find that in most modern versions, this verse is either omitted altogether or relegated to a side margin or a footnote. What should we think about this? Well, I do not have time to consider all of the objections and respond to them individually. So let me cite a very capable authority, Francis Turton of the Academy of Geneva, who lived from 1623 to 1687 in his institutes. This volume called The Institutes, produced by Francis Turton, was the text for Reformed and Presbyterian ministers for near 200 years in seminaries. And so this would be one of those volumes that would have a great authority, human authority, in the eyes of many. And so we read from Turretin just a brief section. He says concerning 1 John 5, 7, To no purpose do the adversaries, in order to avoid this start, endeavor to weaken confidence in this passage, as if it were interpolated because it is wanting or lacking in various Greek manuscripts, is not found in the Syriac and Arabic versions, and is omitted by various fathers, that is, church, early church fathers. Those are the objections that are brought against finding this or seeing this verse as authentic. For the most ancient and approved manuscripts which retain this text support our opinion. Jerome, in his prologue to the canonical epistles, remarks that it existed in the Greek manuscripts, and Erasmus confesses that it was extant in the Codex Britannicus. The most approved editions, that of Complutensis, Antwerp, Arius Montanus, Robert Stevens, and Walton, which are founded upon the best manuscripts, have it. Hence, if in some it is wanting or lacking, this must be attributed either to the fraud and treachery of the Arians, as Jerome acknowledges, or of the more ancient heretics whose sacrilege, sacrilegious hands evidently tampered with the scriptures. <clears throat> Furthermore, one other bit of testimony that this verse belongs in the scripture it is cited as having God's absolute authority by the Reformed churches of the First and Second Reformations. Preeminently, we cite Westminster Assembly, 
that the Westminster Assembly, one of the most learned and godly assemblies ever to assemble, they have included 1 John 5-7 as their first biblical proof for the Trinity in the following places. Westminster Confession, Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, Section 3, Larger Catechism, Number 9, and Shorter Catechism, Number 6. This is the passage that they first appealed to as authority in demonstrating that God is triune. Well, let us consider now these witnesses, these heavenly witnesses, very briefly. The Father, first of all. The Father bore testimony that Jesus Christ was the Son of God come in the flesh throughout Christ's ministry. But note these occurrences especially. We already noted Christ's baptism where the Father spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He does so again at Christ's transfiguration in Matthew 17.5. He does so again in John 12, verses 28-29 through 29, at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. He speaks audibly from heaven and acknowledges Jesus Christ to be his Son who is glorified by God the Father. How about the Son? Well, in this passage he's called the Word. The Word is a name used for the second person of the Trinity even in the Old Testament. The Word you may have thought of some mere intangible uh, type of expression when it says the word of the Lord came or the word of God came unto such and such a person. I think we should see this as the personal word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming and speaking to his people in the Old Testament as we find him doing in 1 Kings 12.22. I don't have time this Lord's Day to, to open the text and to read them, so if you're taking notes, simply note these references. And in 1 Chronicles 17.3, and we could cite many more, but we cite those. But the Lord Jesus Christ is also noted to be the Word in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, bore testimony concerning himself that he was the Son of God come in the flesh, by referring to himself many, many times throughout the New Testament as the Son of God. It's one of the uh, titles that he uses most frequently, that he is the Son of God. We see it also demonstrated by all the miracles which he performed, that he was the Son of God. In fact, John says at the conclusion of his gospel that all these things are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing in Him, you might have life in His name. You see, that was the purpose for revealing all that 
John did in his gospel, in all of the gospel accounts, that you might believe that he is the Son of God and thereby have life in his name. But we also, and I say especially, see the word demonstrated to be the Son of God by his resurrection. The Apostle Paul makes this reference in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, now notice, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection declared him to be the Son of God. And finally, the Spirit bears witness to Christ being the Son of God, as we've noted, at the baptism of Christ, descended in the form of a dove. On the day of Pentecost, the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire and the gifts of tongues that were poured out all pointed to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. That's what those were intended to teach. They were to point their attention to Christ being exalted at God's right hand. Him who is the Son of God. And certainly, the Spirit bears witness to Christ being the Son of God in his many, many, many works in the lives of all of those who trust in him. All of his operations in our life point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. One more point before our last main point. It says at the end of verse 8, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 7, and these three are one. It mentions the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. That means, first of all, one in essence. This is one God. The three persons of the Trinity. You can see why this was such a strong verse to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. These three separate witnesses are one. Now it doesn't say, as we find at the end of verse 8. If you look at the end of verse 8, it says, And these three agree in one. That is, the earthly witnesses agree in one. But it says concerning the heavenly witnesses, these three are one. And again, it points to their essence, to their nature, that they are one God. But we go on to say, not only are they one in essence, but because they are one in essence, have the same nature, they are one in agreement as to their testimony concerning Christ's divine sonship. And I would simply note that this is the pattern of unity after which the Church of Christ should continually strive. Agreement in the truth, like the Trinity. Continually. We won't agree in every single detail, but we ought to be striving to have that kind of unity. And where our faithful forefathers have, through their biblical confessions and creeds, in defending the truth against heresy, place before us these divine truths. We ought at least to stand upon these truths 
in agreement within the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be striving for. This idea of toleration, pluralism within the church of Jesus Christ, that we can believe whatever we choose to believe, and yet be members of the same church, is foreign to the concept of the Trinity. It's foreign to biblical understanding as to what the nature of God is. Thus, uniformity in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline is the divine pattern we should reflect in the church. And we come to the last main point, the conclusion of the testimony, verse 9. All of this has been leading up to this point, and it will be a brief one, but pay attention closely because this is what it's led up to. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. John argues from the lesser to the greater in this particular passage. If you receive the witness of men, if two or three witnesses in a court of law, a fallible court, you believe can substantiate evidence that can be used in that case, how much more the infallible testimony of God establishes the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and because He is the Son of God, your salvation is secure because He is God Himself. He cannot lie. He is able to do all that He has promised to do. You see, that's what He has built up to. What is your confidence in? Is your confidence in some kind of shakable foundation? Something that's going to move because of the distress, the circumstances through which you go? Absolutely not. Your faith, dear ones, is founded in the Son of God. That's what the Apostle has been building up to at this point. And so we can rest in childlike confidence. If our children have confidence in us, are they continuously wondering whether they're our children day in and day out? Does that confidence get shaken? Of course not. They're assured that you, as parents, love them. They're safe. They're secure in that confidence. And so, dear ones, so we are like little children when we understand that the object of our faith is not some mere ordinary person who is fallible, shakable, but it is in the Son of God who is almighty to fulfill His promises that He has made to you, who will uphold your faith no matter how weak it may be at times, for He ever lives to make intercession for you. And He will never leave you nor forsake you this is the unshakable confidence of one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Please stand with me in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we do thank thee this day for this word. 
which teaches us to look from ourselves, to look upon Christ, to see him as, as beautiful, to see him as the, the most holy God, to see him as one who cannot fail to keep his promises, who is not lacking in any power to save. O oh, Father, we do pray that thou would cause thy people through difficult times, through times of blessing, to not forget thee, to not forget that it is only through Christ and through Christ alone that we have eternal life. But he is not some mere man, but he is the eternal Son of God who was made flesh, dwelt among us, who secured and purchased our salvation, and who does manifest himself in our lives through a love for holiness and a love for the truth and a love for God and the brethren but who chiefly evidences himself in our faith as being the object of our faith. O Lord our God, we looked to him even now and pray that thou would support us, weak and frail as we are, that thou would embrace us as we have, Lord God, embrace thee, that thou would continue to embrace us and and never let us fall away. That is our uh, comfort. That is our confidence. That no one can take us from thy hand. We thank thee, Father, for these rich and precious promises. For these are the truths that will sustain us in times to come. When everything else may seem to fail. Family, friends, wealth, prosperity... Jesus, the Son of God, will never abandon nor leave us. We thank thee, O God, for this, thy promise and thy word. In his name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.